It's a great day to be Wisconsin proud. I'm Libby Collins, and welcome to Country Connection. As you approach Lake Park, you'll notice a tall tower. You might have said, gee, you know, that looks like a lighthouse. I wonder if I could go inside. Well, joining us today is Mark Kane. He's the curator of the North Point Lighthouse Museum. And Mark, great to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. Now, I know a lot of people have driven by it. A lot of people have kind of looked at it. They're not sure exactly what it is, but that lighthouse has been here for how many years? Well, it's been in Lake Park since um, 1855. The house that's there currently uh, was there was built in 1888. And uh, yes, we have a lot of people coming in uh, on weekends for tours, and the first thing they say as they walk in the door is, I've lived for my whole life. I never knew there was a lighthouse here. Well, tell us a little bit of the history about the North Point Lighthouse. Okay, well, I'm going to go back to the first lighthouse built in, in Milwaukee, built in 1838, and was at the end of what is now Wisconsin Avenue. But when they built it in 1838, they built it in the wrong spot. It was built on the inside of the Bay of Milwaukee. Milwaukee is the largest bay on the western side of Lake Michigan. It's three miles deep and seven miles across. And the ships coming from the north couldn't see it back in the 1800s. So they petitioned the government to move it. So in 1855, they moved it up to North Point. North Point is the northernmost point to the Bay of Milwaukee. And they built a house on the bluff uh, in 1855, and it was a 28-foot tower. And it was about 105 feet above Lake Michigan. Well, uh, that was fine, except they built it too close to the bluff. And by the late 1800s, the bluff eroded to the point where they were 10 feet from losing the lighthouse to the lake. So they abandoned that, and they moved the lighthouse about 100 yards to the west, southwest, to where it is today. And they built the current lighthouse, uh, Victorian-style uh, keeper's quarters and uh, cast-iron tower in 1888. And that stood um, about 46 feet tall. Uh, but uh, when Frederick Olmsted, who designed Central Park in New York City, uh, he came to Milwaukee uh, after uh, designing, the, he was the landscape architect for the Columbian Exhibition of 1893 in Chicago known as the White City. Well, he came up to Milwaukee after that, and he designed Lake Park, Riverside Park, and Washington Park. And, and Lake Park was his, he called it his jewel of parks. He loved it so much. So the lighthouse was there already, so he, he bookended the lighthouse with those two beautiful line bridges that we still have there today and planted trees. Well, by 1907, the tree line got so high he couldn't see the lighthouse anymore. So they shut the light off. They had tree huggers back in those days, I think. So they uh, uh, brought a light ship in for a few years, but a light ship out in the bay didn't work. So in 1912, they added to the tower uh, and uh, to make it a 74-foot to tower with about 154 feet above Lake Michigan, making it the only lighthouse in, in, was in the country built out of three lighthouses. It's, they took the old lantern room from the 1855 house and placed it on top of the 1888 house, then they added the addition in 1912. So we have 1912, 1888, and 1855 lighthouse pieces. How essential was that lighthouse to the safety of ships uh, coming in and out of Milwaukee? It was Milwaukee? very essential. It was the beacon that guided you into Milwaukee. Uh, from North Point, you could get in, you could see the beginning of the bay, and then there was the Pierhead Light, which is located uh, just south of Summerfest. There's still a lighthouse there today. It's painted red, but it's abandoned. And you use that to get into the into the what was called the pierhead or the river, and that's how you navigate it and get into the port of Milwaukee. How does the North Point Lighthouse compare with other lighthouses around the country? It's very similar. Um, uh, 
they are all you know navigation aids and uh, all lighthouses uh, are they have this uh, the same lens it's called a Fresnel lens and uh, it's especially designed uh, glass cut glass that magnifications so each lighthouse uh, the focal length of a lighthouse is usually about the beam goes out about 21 miles and 21 miles is where your curvature of the earth is so you can't see a light after 21 miles so if you look at a map on the we have a map in our lighthouse from a 1910 of all the lighthouses on Lake Michigan and all the lights overlap so you never lose sight of a lighthouse as you come down the lake the same it's the same you know in other parts of the, of the country also so it was an, a, a navigation aid uh, for, for mariners and and when did they I don't want to say become obsolete but when did they become not as necessary? Uh, when the um, when Loran and GPS were uh, introduced, um, our lighthouse was a functioning lighthouse until 1994 when they turned it off because of GPS and Loran. Uh, there are still lighthouses that are functional, but they're automated. Um, ours, when it was uh, built in 1888, was lit with mineral oil. The 1838 house was lit with whale oil. So... The, uh, 18, the one that ours is, was originally lit with mineral oil, then converted to coal gas in 1912 and electrified in 1929. Who took care of the, the lighthouse? They were called keepers. They were uh, federal employees. They were under the, it was called the U.S. Lighthouse Service. And again, they were you know, federal employees. And um, they were, um, they're the ones that were, uh, they all signed an oath that they'd be the keepers of the light. And now, um, what kind of responsibilities did they have? You had to uh, make sure that that light was burning all night long. Uh, our first keeper and longest serving keeper was a woman by the name of Georgia Stebbins. She was the daughter of the previous keeper who was from the 1855 house. And she moved to Milwaukee because she was suffering from tuberculosis. And they thought in those days fresh air would help. So she came to Milwaukee to stay with her parents and found out her father was too sick to take care of the lighthouse. So she took over for him as a keeper in 1881 at the, old, the, the, the house that was on the bluff and then was our first keeper in eight, the 1888 house and our longest serving keeper until 1907. So what was that? What was life like for them then? It, well, it would have been probably uh, nocturnal. Yes, she would have to, um, again, that's when the house was lit with mineral oil. So there was an oil house out back that she would have to go out around dusk, bring the oil in, measure it on a drip pan, place it into a vessel and take what would, be, what would look like a hurricane lamp up to the top of the tower place it inside the lens, and that's what illuminated the lens. Now, she would have to replenish that lens at light every four hours from dusk till dawn every day. And we estimated the time that Georgia lived there. She climbed those stairs 63,800 times. And how many stairs? There's 84 stairs to the top that includes a 13-step ladder. Now, when Georgia lived there, the tower wasn't as tall, but she still had to do it every four hours. And there weren't really, over the history of the lighthouse, that many keepers, were there? Um, well, there were keepers. I mean, there weren't that many women keepers. Uh, mm -hmm. She was a very, one of the few. Uh, but the keepers uh, would, um, you know, they were be, a lot of them were transferred. Several of the keepers that were at the North Point Lighthouse were, had served at other lighthouses, Racine, Kenosha, uh, the Door County area. Uh, there were several of them. So they kind of moved around. Um, some of the ones that were on remote islands, they didn't let them stay out there too long because it got a little too tough for them mentally to, to stay out there. Um, our lighthouse being right in the pretty much in the residential area was was unique because it, it's in the city proper so it was it's a lot of lighthouses were only accessible by boat 
So I would imagine a lot of people wanted to be assigned to that lighthouse. Yes, yeah, it was a it was a ni- it was a ten room single family home, and so pretty nice for 1888, and still pretty nice for 2018. Now, if you're just tuning in and you want to catch up on the conversation you missed with Mark Keene, who's the curator of the North Point Lighthouse Museum, just go to kticountry.com, click on the features tab, and you'll find this and past Country Connection interviews. Now, you've mentioned um, it was a working lighthouse until 19. 19- 1994. What happened to it then? Did it go into disarray? Well, it um, the Coast Guard uh, gave it to the county, and it was abandoned. They took the lens out, and uh, the house, they shuttered the house, and it stood abandoned for quite a few years uh, when uh, a, a group of people uh, led by a gentleman by the name of John Scripp, who was our board president, uh, organized a group called the North Point Lighthouse Friends, and they got the funds together to restore the house and started restoring the house in 2003, and uh, we opened as a museum in 2007, so we just celebrated our 10th anniversary last November. How complete was the restoration? Uh, several million dollars. Uh, they had to do, do a lot of lead abatement and um, uh, asbestos, and uh, there was a lot of oil. They had to replenish, replenish the soil around there. It was a total uh, frame-up construct re- reconstruction. But if you see it today, is it like it was yes, then? Yes, it's, it's very close to what it was originally uh, uh, was like. Um, again, the, the gallery, the inside, is, was, is made for the muse- as, as a museum. But uh, we still have the rooms upstairs. Our second floor is where our boardroom is and uh, offices. But uh, it pretty much contains the, the, the lines of the original 1888 house. What sort of exhibits do you have at the museum? We have, uh, we have a, a nice, we, have the, the, we got the lens back from the Coast Guard. Uh, it's the fourth order Fresnel lens, and that's in a case in the gallery. We also have the lens from the 1860 um, breakwater pierhead light. Uh, and we just acquired a lens from uh, the uh, Kokana light. Um, so we'll have three lenses in the gallery. We also have uh, panels that show the, some of the keepers that lived there, including Georgia and her father, and the first keeper, Eli Bates, who was our keeper of the 1838 house. Um, and uh, we also have uh, several uh, exhibits about um, shipwrecks and uh, some of the uh, ships. Uh, we have ship models uh, that show about the, the Great Lakes schooners. Uh, there's an exhibit about... Uh, my uncle, who lived there from 1957 until 1961, he was in the Coast Guard. And you used to go there as a yes, as a child. Yeah, he he was transferred there from Woods Hole, Massachusetts, in 1957, and he brought his family, my cousins, there. So uh, I used to visit my cousins when I was a child. I was in kindergarten, so I have a lot of nice memories of that house and Lake Park. And then today, now I am the curator, so I have a, it's a lot of fun. Now, do you have any particular events at the museum? Yes, uh, we just we're starting our second season of uh, what's called the, the lectures at the lighthouse. Um, they're a monthly um, lecture series, and we have several different speakers that talk about Milwaukee history and maritime history. Uh, it's going to be our, our next ex- um, lecture is going to be March fourteenth. Uh, Gavin Schmidt is going to be talking about the Milwaukee Mafia. So we know the that, that sounds like a yeah. really interesting and we topic. Have, uh, we just had one uh, talk about a gentleman talk about shipwreck photography. We're going to have uh, Thomas Faring in May talk about the magnificent machines of Milwaukee. You know, the lighthouse used to be a beacon uh, to guide ships and mariners safely, and and today it's a beacon to bring people in to learn about history. And by the way, how can we get more information about those? upcoming lectures. You can go to our, our website. It's northpointlighthouse.org backslash lectures. 
and uh, you can read about you can see the whole schedule of lectures and um, and read and learn more about the lighthouse and our visiting hours and such. And if you'd like information about the Lake Point Lighthouse Museum sent directly to your phone, just text the keyword connection to 414-799-9494. Can listeners go to the top of the lighthouse? Yes, that's that's the big uh, draw. It's you can uh, it's uh, the tours are we're open Saturdays and Sundays from 1 till 4 year round. And uh, admission is $10 for adults, $5 for children 12 and under. Uh, seniors are $5, and we are a Blue Star Museum, so all military are, are free. You can climb the 84 stairs to the top and get a beautiful 360-degree view of Milwaukee and Lake Michigan. And is it open for other events as well? Yes, we are. We, uh, we rent the museum out for weddings and uh, special occasions. We, uh, you can have birthday parties there, and uh, we have a, a wonderful events planner you can work with. So, again, just go to our website, and you can learn more about that. It's a great place to get uh, engaged in. Uh, we've been having a lot of people coming in there to get, to get engaged, and it's, um, they go to the top of the tower and like to say, if, if the woman comes down and she's crying, she said yes. If he comes down and he's crying, she said no. But how romantic. It is. It's wonderful. I mean, it's and it's a great photo op, too. Uh, do they have to tell you ahead of time they're going to do that? Yeah, we'd, we'd prefer that. If, if, if they want to come in on off hours um, uh, to do it. Uh, you know, Otherwise, if you don't mention anything, you might have to be uh, proposing in front of a bunch of people up in the tower uh, that are visitors also. So it's up to you. Now, when you say off hours, you mean... Uh, Without, besides our visiting hours, I mean, you can uh, call and you can arrange to have a private, uh, if you want to just do something privately, uh, you know, with friends, uh, you can do that too. What's the most unique engagement that you've seen there? The the best one I saw, it was a surprise, and it was on a Saturday morning, and um, the the grooms, the the, the guy uh, had all of his friends, uh, they each had a card, and it's, it's spelled out, will you marry me, Jane? And um, they were hiding in the in the in the lighthouse, and uh, he showed up and and gave her just he, he we made it look like oh you're open can I take a quick tour sure because I'm usually there on Saturdays doing some stuff my curatorial work and so I sent I sent them up the tower and as soon as they went into the tower I ran downstairs I got the people and they all ran outside and by the time they climbed the 84 stairs and got to the top of the tower all his friends were standing down on the grass. With the holding up the cards that said, "Will you marry me?" and uh, it was so, it was so much fun. She came down and she was just in tears, and everybody was hugging each other. And it was a wonderful, uh, just a wonderful thing to do. Oh, how wonderful! Yeah, that's, it's just yeah. That's so you can you know you can make up anything you want. That's kind of a fun thing about being going there. You know, it's you never know what's going to happen. Well, Mark, you got to tell us one more time how people, how listeners can get in touch with you. Whether they want to come to the lecture series, they want to tour the museum. They want to get married there, or maybe they want to get engaged. Sure. How do they reach you? Again, it's northpointlighthouse.org, and um, you can just go to the website. And uh, we also have a Facebook page, uh, so you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, so we'd love to see it, have them come by. And, and we have people from all over the world come, uh, which is fun. And we have two big maps in our gift shop, uh, pin maps. And when people come in, we ask them where they're from. And if they're from out of state or out of country, we have them put a pin in the map. And it's wonderful at the end of the year to see how many pins we have. Mark Keene, curator of the North Point Lighthouse Museum. Thanks for being here. Thank and you very much. We're right. going to have links at kticountry.com. All you have to do is click on the Features tab, look for connections, and share this interview with family and friends. There are a number of museums in Milwaukee you may not be aware of. Here's one more to visit.
We've all listened to stories from our grandparents about the good old days when they were young. But have you ever wanted to see for yourself what life was like in the 20s and 30s right here in Milwaukee? Joining us today is Joel Willems. He's from the Chudnow Museum of Yesteryear. And if people don't know, what's the Chudnow? Well, we're a a small little museum um, in downtown Milwaukee. We show authentic items from the 1910s through the 1940s. It was all begun by this um, single collector in town uh, uh, from Chudnow. Um, His father had been a junk peddler, so we like to say he was a picker before they had television shows. So he would have been up there on American Pickers with the rest of the guys. Oh, yeah, he would have been having a great time learning and and sharing a lot of his knowledge. How many different items do you have in the museum? There are over 300,000 things in our collection. Um, we can't show that all at the same time. I was time. going to say, but at any given time, how many items do you have on display? Four or five percent. If you've been to the museum a couple of years ago, chances are you'd go back today and you'd see almost an entirely oh, new exhibit. Yeah, we change um, uh, three or four large exhibits throughout the course of 12 months. And we're always updating, you know, um, common exhibits that people enjoy and having special seasonal little exhibits like, oh, it's Valentine's Day, let's bring out some of the old candy boxes. Let's talk about some of the very popular exhibits. Milwaukee is known for its breweries. And if you think back, if you've ever watched any movies, TV, we've all seen about Prohibition and Al Capone and all the rest of it. How do you display that at the museum? (laughs) Well... Uh, our time period is during Prohibition, so we can't have like a saloon in a tavern in the advertisements all over. Instead, there's a special speakeasy with an entrance through the barber shop. Um, inside, then you'll find the cases and uh, many of the drinkware that was still quite common in Milwaukee. According to the FBI in 1928, there was 1,100 speakeasies or medicinal liquor places in Milwaukee. Where were they all? Well, many were in people's homes <laughs> in the basement or a back room. Um, others were in, like we have kind of arranged it, oh, behind a front, you know, just like you see in those movies you talked about. And some were quite well known to people throughout the area, including uh, our politicians and police. Now, you said that a lot of them were in people's homes. Were those open to the public or just the neighbors or just friends and family? Well, a little bit of both. Um, They had a phenomenon called raise the rent parties where uh, you would advertise we're having a a party at at our house why don't you drop maybe 50 cents or a dollar in the bucket, come in the door, we'll listen to some music, have some uh, good food, and naturally the drinks will be Prohibition-era items. <laughs> I, can think, I can think of a lot of college kids that would want to do that kind of party today. It is today. a lot like a fraternity, yes. <laughs> now, with, with the liquor being prohibited from being manufactured in the, from what, 1919 until 1933? 33. That's 14 years. Yeah. Where did they get all the liquor? Well, many of it came from Canada, uh, especially up here in northern, uh, the northern United States. So they would bring it in on airplanes, uh, smuggle it in trucks, uh, maybe even on the lakes and rivers throughout here. Um, others were, were just made by people in their homes. Um, in uh, Moonshine. Yeah. 
I mean, uh, out in the country, just kind of that thing. But even making homemade beer, you know, which today is legal, it's it's not that difficult to do. So people were doing it literally in the basement. Yes. Oh, yes. We're here with Joel Willems. He's from the Chudnow Museum of Yesterday. And if you're just tuning in and you'd like to catch up on the conversation you missed, go to kticountry.com, click on the Features tab, and you'll find this and past Country Connection interviews. Now, some of the other things that you have at the museum include a toy store. What kind of toys did children play with back then? Well, uh, several that would be familiar today. Uh, The problem is I like to joke that uh, they didn't run on batteries. They ran on something we called imagination. Ah. So there's a lot of wooden items. No video games. No video games. Um, there are many board games that we enjoy. Uh, Monopoly was around in the 30s already. Um, local ones that have connections might be um, Tinker Toys uh, from Evanston, Illinois, or Lincoln Logs and the lesser-known Lincoln Bricks were vo- both invented by Frank Lloyd Wright's son. And that was before Legos. Oh, yes. What's one of the most unusual toys that you've seen? Uh, unusual toys? Well, we have one one that a few people remember, it's an airplane game uh, by this uh, very popular cartoon at that time, Uncle Wiggly. He was kind of a cross between Briar Rabbit and Bugs Bunny, you know, always getting in trouble. And this one kind of teaches you a little bit how to read as you're playing on a board like a shoots and ladder. But that is a very rare one. Um, Not many people have come across that. We're here with Joe Willems from the Chudnow Museum of Yesteryear. Okay, some of the other things that people might think would be a little different back then than they are now. What were drugstores like back then? You didn't have Walgreens. You didn't have CVS. Well, actually, Walgreens was begun about at that time down in uh, our, our neighbor again, the Chicago area. Um, but yeah, there wasn't, it was more of thinking of It's a Wonderful Life, you know, the drugstore there where you get a little bit of everything. Um, this concoction might make you feel better, but the chances that it cure you, like our Theraflu today, very slim. What sort of concoctions would they be giving to the people coming in? Well, think of things that make you feel good. Again, alcohol in there. And uh, you could get a special prescription during Prohibition for medicinal liquor. Or what else? Well, the things that people maybe misuse today. Opium product like heroin, morphine, cocaine. Many of these were in popular sodas that we still have today. Pepsi-Cola contained pepsin for your upset stomach. That's why they call it Pepto-Bismol for the same type of a thing. My favorite um, soda from that time, 7-Up, began being made with bilithiated uh, water. What, so, what is that? Well, it, it contained lithia-7, which is a mood stabilizer. People with bipolar disorder might still be prescribed that today. It makes you feel happier. 7-up, therefore. Uh, be a 7-upping your mood. That, that is fascinating. I, I think a lot of people would be surprised that things that now you either need a prescription or that are totally illegal were available back then. I mean, with today's internet, these might be the the silly little memes that are once in a while out there. Oh, remember when you used to be able to buy heroin over the counter and now you can't anymore from Bayer. But um, yeah, a lot of companies have kind of shied away from that. Oh, we never had cocaine and Coca-Cola. We had 
coca extract. Well, that's cutting it a little close. Now, I understand during warm weather months, you have a garage with some very special items in it at the Chudnow. Yeah, the two main things in there are two 1930 Chevrolets, uh, a four-door and a two-door sports coupe. Um, Both of them were made in Janesville, Wisconsin. So again, the local connection. The um, two-door coupe was one of those barn finds that you hear about. We had opened up the museum. We're open for about a year and a half. And a lady contacted our uh, president and said, well, back in our family farm, it's under a lot of stuff, but there, there's an old car buried back there. If you can dig it out and get it transported, you can have it. Where was that? Um, look, nearby here in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and, yep, just up north a little bit. The family had last used the car, and you could tell with the license plates, in 1969. So it had just kind of sat there, but yet it was inside. So the interior of it's an almost pristine condition. Upholstery is all still there. Something that's kind of rare where, hey, that might be rotting away. The original green is still the coloring on the car. The dashboard is all in one piece, including the um, ignition key. Uh, What is missing on the dashboards, uh, actually of all automobiles of that time, is a speedometer. Car didn't get very fast. These both of these were straight six, so six cylinders, which was a new invention instead of the old fours that would have ran the Model T cars from Henry Ford. And what's the other car that you have, the other vehicle? The other one is um, uh, still a straight six Chevrolet sedan that came to us. It used to be used in the Eau Claire region by the fire chief for a small little town up there. It had to be a faster car than, again, the the Ford automobiles that were available. But no time. speedometer in that one either. No speedometer, no. Now, you own, those are only available, or those are only uh, open to the public that they can come and look as in warm weather months? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a little cold sometimes to be standing outside in, in the garage. It's not attached to our building, so it's not heated, but if you ask me nice, I'll probably show it to you anyway. Do you have any any other car or truck-related items in that garage? Um, another uh, item that we have that's very large is an uh, old railway uh, wagon. These would have been the Railway Express, the big green wagons for getting all your luggage on and off. Um, we had a problem with the wheel a few years ago. We had to get a new wheel then crafted by an Amish gentleman from western Wisconsin. I understand you also have an agricultural exhibit. Yes, this is a a new exhibit that was just put together by um, the public history class at Marquette University. This was their final project for their class this semester. And um, well, it includes a little bit of that story on why we became the dairy state and our governor hoard. Uh, A lot of our land, especially when it got cleared of the trees, wasn't uh, as well suited to growing the corn or the wheats that you're going to find in an Iowa or Nebraska. But yet it grew grass and alfalfa very well, which, well, you could have animals that would uh, graze on there. So cows naturally became the big thing. And by 1915, Wisconsin became the largest dairy state in the United States. Well, you have so many exhibits at the Chudnow Museum. 
we we don't have time to cover all of them, Joel. But if listeners would like to come and see some of the things we've talked about up close for themselves, how can they do it? When are you open? Well, we are open from Wednesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And Sunday from noon to 4 p.m. Um, Sunday is also our family day, so you can get in at one price for your entire family. The location is 839 North 11th Street in Milwaukee. And you can find more information about all our uh, current and past exhibits on chudnellmuseum.org. And I know that you and other members of the museum staff are also available to come out and give presentations to the community. Yes, uh, we um, enjoy sharing with people that can't also visit us, uh, having a little bit of show and tell, reminiscing. We learn quite a lot from these uh, exchanges as well about the collection and the heritage of Wisconsin. And I know you're going to be doing a presentation on March 20th at Luther Manor, and people can call there and get more information about that. But once again, Joel, if they'd like more information about Chudnow, maybe... There just might be somebody out there listening with some items that might be interesting in that museum. Would you like to hear from them as well? We still take donations every week <laughs> today. Um, we are uh, obviously preferred to have the items uh, that are going to be on display in our collection from 20s and 30s, uh, Milwaukee and Wisconsin history. But there's always that one kind of unusual little piece that maybe your grandma used to use that's in wonderful shape that, well, future generations will appreciate. Especially those barn finds. <laughs> exactly. Joel Willems from the Chudnow Museum of Yesteryear. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And we're going to have links at kticountry.com. Just click on the Features tab, look for Connections, and share this interview with family and friends. And for Country Connection, I'm Libby Collins.